We have some great words to study today. I want to let you know, uh, as you're praying for me, thank you for that. I'm Pastor Duane. I oversee our Connections Ministries, and that means I'm normally involved with lots of people, and there's no people here, but I know you're all out there. But God has blessed me this morning. He sent an audience, a very small, a tiny little audience to help me, to cheer me on. There are some crickets over here on my left side, and they've been chirping me all morning. So uh, pray that they don't become a distraction. They certainly won't, but uh, I'm not alone. I'm with you, and I'm, I'm excited. So I'm the Connections Pastor. I oversee our small groups and our First Impressions teams. But uh, today I'm, I'm eager to get into God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to finish up the first half of our series on the Holy Spirit and His gifts. And we've been realizing that He's not so mysterious after all. Over these last few weeks, we've been talking specifically about the kind of character that the Holy Spirit produces in us as a result of walking with Jesus Christ. And we've been camped in one particular area of the Bible, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I can do this from memory. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the best part. Against such things, there is no law. That last part means there's no limit on what we can produce for God in these areas. It means that we, can't, we don't just have to be satisfied with just one of these traits, and we can have them all. And with each trait, God is pleased to see the whole process of growth, from the tiny bud of patience or kindness to the full flower of joy and self-control, and then finally the delicious fruit of love. These are the words that we use to talk about each other's souls. Characteristics like these don't describe our physical characteristics. They don't describe our physical bodies. Uh, when we want to describe our physical selves, we might use, like in my case, you might use a word like, well, he's six feet, he's almost six feet, so he's, he's tall. You might compare my skin to another person, you might say he's dark. And then you might want to come up with like a third word that goes with tall and dark, and you might come up with hungry. You knew that's what I was going to say. So those are some physical descriptors of who I am. But, uh, you know, those don't describe my soul. They, they say nothing about how my spiritual relationship with God is going. But yet, when you can detect genuine growth in these areas of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, you can imagine that God has some, been doing some work in my life. And the part that's exciting for me is that when I detect this in you, when I can see these fruit growing in you, I can praise God for his work in your life as well. So let's get back into Galatians chapter 5. Hopefully you have your Bibles here. Hopefully you've gathered your plate or doing whatever you've done, made yourself comfortable. We're going to sit down and, and take a walk through this scripture together. And we're going to see how God would direct, would direct us again as we study these last three fruit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I would just thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for these ways in which this church can be together. Lord, I thank you that we have a sense that we are together. Uh, Lord, we, we need to remember that we're encouraging one another through your Holy Spirit that binds us together. And today, Lord, through your word, through the direction of your Holy Spirit, you want to enrich us with an understanding of more of this spiritual fruit. So, Lord, open our minds. Help us to see what you, where we, you would want us to grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin. When I'm walking with Christ, I'll be producing faithfulness without irrationality. 
When I'm walking with Christ, I'll be producing faithfulness without irrationality. So we want to look at each of these words and, and take each of them and describe them and learn about them. And this first one is faithfulness. You are being faithful when you act in line with what you believe and for the approval of the one that you believe in. It's a quality that must accompany every step of our walk with God because, as the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is a thematic element in the New Testament. It's the subject of the entire New Testament, and really you can find it all over the Bible, and there's so many places where it speaks to us about faith, but I want you to hear this, that faith, Romans 10, 17, faith in God comes through hearing his word. So it, it helps us understand that he has revealed himself so that you and I may trust him. So if you're trying to build your faith with, with God, if you're trying to build your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to pay attention to his word. Faith is described that way. It's also described in James chapter 2, verse 18, when, where James says, show me your faith by what you believe, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith is demonstrated in how we live in light of what God has asked us to do. Faith is explained to us as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What are these things? What are the things that, that help us believe in God? It's the things, the words of God, the acts of God, the miracles of God, the histories of God, the testimonies of God's people. These are the things that God has showed to us. And the bottom line here is that without these faith, without faith in these things, you can't expect to enjoy your relationship with God or really understand what it means to be part of his church or part of a Christian friendship or a marriage or a family until you truly will believe in Jesus and act in faith. In fact, you can be around church and you can fake a lot of things, but you can, can't fake faith. So faithfulness is what I think is our rational response to Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is not presented to us as a fairy tale. The gospel is, is not one of these stories about the Easter bunny or about some other mythical unicorn or, or, or um, Bigfoot or something like that. It's presented to us as truth and fact and, and something to believe in. Our uh, authors have written about this. C.S. Lewis has written a book called Mere Christianity, which I highly recommend if you're debating whether or not it's wise or smart or logical to believe in, in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis will, will give you some arguments for that. It's how he reasoned that faith in Jesus Christ was necessary. Also, Lee Strobel wrote um, The Case for Christ, and that's another excellent book that you can read or recommend to another person to help you understand that faithfulness is the rational response to Jesus Christ. But really, even if those books weren't written, scriptures, God's word is written to, to help us see that believing in God and submitting to Jesus is our reasonable act of worship. All human faith in the Bible is demonstrated in response to God first revealing himself in an undeniable way to the believers. There are several cases that I just want to highlight this morning. This happened with Abraham and Sarah, the, these ancient saints from, from the Old Testament. We've read about their stories. God promised them a child in their old age, way past the days that they thought having children would be possible. They'd struggled with infertility for years. Sarah had even had, had reached menopause. But through a miracle, through a promise, through the word of God, she conceived, and Abraham and, and Sarah became the parents of Isaac. Isaac. 
And then later, God came to Abraham and wanted to test his faith and asked him something that would seem so bizarre to us, but I don't think it seemed that bizarre to to Abraham. He said, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac to me. And so Abraham obeyed God, but he reasoned that God himself would provide a lamb for the sacrifice, that there was no way that this child that had been provided as a gift to him and Sarah would be taken by a God who loved him and had promised him descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore through Isaac. So he, he went and faithfully went through the activities of the sacrifice. He even bound his son, put him on the, on the altar, raised the knife, and at that moment, God honored his faithfulness and provided a lamb just as Abraham reasoned he would. There's also Stephen, who was one of the first deacons of the early church. He, he was one of our first martyrs. He exhibited faith right up to the point of his execution, which was by stoning. He, he preached the gospel to his executioners, not because he wanted to, he had a death wish, not because he had a death wish and wanted to infuriate them, but he preached the gospel knowing they would be angry because he had a vividly clear understanding that Jesus Christ, this man that he'd heard about, the man that had died on the cross, the man that people were telling him was the Christ, he believed that was true. It was undeniable to him, and killing him wouldn't change the fact that Jesus was the promised Son of God. He reasoned that he would rather die than than tell people Jesus was not the Son of God. And none of us should ever forget about Peter, the rock of faith, whose faith was considered a rock by Christ. He expresses our faith in so many places in in poignant words. There's this day, it's recorded in in the Gospel of John around chapter 6, where after Jesus had fed the 5,000, the crowds came back to him and they were hungry again, and Jesus turned them away. He preached some hard words to them, and they all left. This crowd, which had numbered 5,000 plus the wives and children the day before, they all turned away, and it came down to just a handful of people that stood with Jesus, that stood by him. And Peter was in that crowd, and, and Jesus turned to Peter and, testing his faith, said, hey, Peter, everybody's gone away. Don't you want to leave too? And Peter answered him the words that recorded for us in John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him in this reasonable way. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. That is our word, faithfulness. We have come to know, there's the reason, there's the rationality that you, you, Jesus Christ, you, Jesus of Nazareth, this person in front of me, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. Faithfulness is our rational response to God. That's why I say the Holy Spirit, as we walk with Christ, develops within us faithfulness without irrationality. All the biblical accounts of, of faith help us see, see how faith has grown in people that God shows himself to. And faith is what motivates your loyalty to God. It's what motivates you to give him control of your life. It's, it helps you trust him through your darkest and most doubtful moments. Faith in God is what challenges you to the higher expectations of faithfulness from yourself towards other people as well. And walking with Christ is how we demonstrate our faithfulness to God. There's no point in you ever telling someone you're a Christian if you do not obey Jesus Christ. But if you have faith in him, 
if you are taking the next step and the next step based on something that God has shown you in his word, based on some testimony, based on some interaction that God has had with you that is now undeniable and you are obeying, you are walking with Christ and the Holy Spirit is producing faithfulness in you. So the Bible shows us what faithfulness looks like all over the place, but it also shows us how we break faith. And just so we have a clear picture, I've presented these 10 ways that we break faith. I think they're going to be on your screens, and you might want to choose to add some more, but I saw these in the scriptures. Uh, we idolize things. We, we are materialistic people, and, and we begin to believe that if we have things in our lives, we will somehow get ahead. One of the things that I'm currently wrestling with idolatry on is just the idea of a car, and I don't want just four wheels and an engine and a steering wheel. I, I, I want something that will help me, honestly, when, I, when I'm idolizing it, help me at least keep up with the Joneses. I, I want something that will be new and make me feel proud as I'm driving down the street. That's the truth. But that's the way that I break faith with God because he said, have nothing else before me. So we idolize things. We gossip. We commit fraud. We give false testimony. We slander. We steal. We abuse authority. We break promises. We default on debts. We neglect friends in need. These are all examples of how we break faith, where we stop being true to people, where we stop being true to our Lord And we need to have this growing faith. That's the evidence that we have submitted to Christ and that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. So if you want that growing faith, how do you get that? How do you get growing faith? How does that begin to work? What can you do to have faith being produced in your life? It's not rocket science. It's explained clearly in several points in the Bible. Again, another list for you. If you, you can pray for faith in what Jesus can do for you, Mark Mark uh, 9, 24, there's a situation where someone comes to Jesus and asks him for a miracle, and it's difficult. He says, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I have faith. Help me overcome my unfaithfulness. It's a prayer. The Gospel of John says if you read that book, it will help you believe that Jesus is the Christ. John 20, 31. You can read the Gospels to help you believe in Jesus Christ. If you're not reading the Gospels, you won't have much to go on as you you try to have a rational basis of faith in Jesus Christ. You can ask someone to teach you more about God. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what you're doing this morning. You're increasing the possibility for your faith to grow. You're, you're listening to the word of God. You're listening to it explained. Each sermon that you've turned into, and maybe more that you'll turn into this week, each time you hear about God's word proclaimed in music that you listen to, or, or videos that you watch, or um, books that you're reading, you're having a chance to have your faith be based in a truth about Jesus Christ, in a truth about the living and eternal God of this world. You can ask someone to teach you about these things. And, and another practical way that you can have your faith growing is to look for a handful of friendships, a handful of relationships in which you can pledge your loyalty, where you can pledge your loyalty to someone as a gift to them, not as a response to their kindness to you. That's how God is faithful to us. He's pledged it to us. He's covenanted his faithfulness to us. He will come back to the church. And that's his promise to us, and we have faith in that. You can do this with your family. You can do this with your marriage. You can do this with your friendships. Faithful relationships is where we believe in each other's trustworthiness. 
and it's essential to our shared faith. And I want to defer at this point, before I get to this uh, section, to Charles Spurgeon, who wrote an interesting quote uh, about the value of faithfulness in friendship. He said, and it's in a much, from a much longer sermon on friendship, and Jesus is the ultimate faithful friend. He says, faithful friends, I say again, are scarce. When thou hast found such a man and proved the sincerity of his friendship, when he has been faithful to thy father and to thee, meaning if he has been good to your family and also to you, grapple him to thyself with hooks of steel and never let him go. Let me tell you, when the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in you, you're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ first, and then you're going to be faithful to other people in the way that Spurgeon is talking about the friends that he knew. So when you're walking with Christ, you'll be producing faithfulness without a rationality. Let's go on. When I'm walking with Christ, I'll be producing gentleness without weakness. That's the next word we see, gentleness. And when we see this word, it's, we have to understand this is probably the, the most challenging concept for us to wrestle with today. Gentleness in English conjures up imagery of lambs and baby deer and maybe bunny rabbits and perhaps you know something else that seems gentle. And we hear the word used to describe mild detergents that are soft on our hands and our skin and our fabrics. For me, this word gentle first brings to mind wrestling matches between parents and their children, between uh, parents and their toddlers. It reminds me of times when I used to wrestle with my dad and he would hold me. He'd kind of get me in a leg grip and I would scream and giggle and, and I'd eventually have to lie and say I have to go to the washroom so he could let me go. And it was so strong and yet it was so much fun. It reminds me also of when I used to do similar things to my children. You know, in these matches, any adults has the physical means to seriously harm their child if the fighting was real. But a gentle dad will never hurt his kids. His movements are always restrained. They're always managed. And in that way, he's being gentle in the sense of this Greek term that we've been studying. So when we see this word gentleness, we can't be thinking of lambs and deer like Bambi or soft little bunnies. We need to think of parents at physical play with their children where they have these grown-sized muscles governed to deliver a child's sheer delight. We need to think about Jesus Christ who was able to speak a word of rebuke against a storm and have it stop in an instant. And yet when he was uh, being mocked and beaten and crucified, he never used his voice to speak a harsh word about his enemies. When we see this word gentle and we think about Jesus, we need to think about another word we have in English, and that's the word meekness. You should absolutely desire meekness, even though the world may confuse meekness with weakness and think that if we're meek, it'll allow people to push you around. It'll allow people to push me around doing what they want us to do instead of what is right. As I read more and more of scriptures, as I get to know Jesus more, as I flip the pages of this scripture and I, and I see who God is and I see who his son was and I, and I see who he wants the people of God to be, it occurs to me that Jesus was meek and he wants the church to be meek, not weak. Jesus was meek and he wasn't weak. Jesus said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. So let me ask you, do you think that Jesus was ever pushed around against his will? 
do you think that someone ever came into Jesus' life and, and forced him to do something that he wasn't prepared to do already? I don't think that ever happened. Jesus was always fully aware of his strengths and completely confident in his identity. His gentleness, when I see it, was compelling without him ever once appearing weak. Jesus spoke about this in John 10, 17. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I could almost read that and hear Jesus daring people in a sense to think, you think you're crucifying me? No, you're not doing anything to me that I haven't already agreed to do for my Father. Here's the point for the church this morning. Jesus' meekness counters the crusading notions we may have of being warrior-like as we try to win other people to Christ or as we interact with each other in our own, um, in our own discussions, in our own, in our own challenges. This quality that Jesus showed, this is the quality that Jesus showed when he reached out to heal the, the centurion's ear after Peter had lashed out to lop it off. So honestly, you probably need to be more gentle in a lot more situations than you currently are. You should probably be more gentle in any situation in which you tend to normally be hostile. Christ's word and example are guiding us to behave differently. Most often it's according to his plan to love. But sometimes when, when our anger is justified, when our anger would be in line with Jesus Christ and our enemy might be totally in the wrong and not at all willing to repent. Sometimes in those situations, God would use our meekness, Jesus would use our meekness to embarrass others in their wickedness. Gentleness in these situations is not a display of weakness. It's a display of restraint because God has willed it. You're saying, prove it to me about this embarrassment thing. Why don't we go over to Romans chapter 12. If you flip back in your Bibles, I want to show you one thing there. You've probably seen it once. Romans chapter 12, 19 to 20. Paul is writing to the church and he advises them, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I had to look up what that idea meant, because it's not physically burning coals on someone's head. There's never a situation where any Christian is advised to do that. Don't try that at home. What, it's, what it means is you're embarrassing someone. You're, you're shaming them. Your goodness in the situation, the fact that you're not retaliating to their provocation, their irritation, the things that they're doing to egg you on when you respond with meekness, when you do things like treat them kindly by feeding them as an enemy or giving, taking care of their needs, you are, you are actively reminding them of what God would want them to think about. You are demonstrating the injustice of what they're doing. So that verse helps us see that gentleness is not passivity regarding the wrong that is done to you. Meekness is an active response to other people's aggression. Meekness 
targets the soul of another person to affect a better response to God. And gentleness, therefore, is called in all sorts of situations. Here's at least four that I could come up with. Four situations for gentleness. One that I saw in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, is when you're restoring someone who's been dishonored by sin or someone who's been caught in sin. I don't want to go, want to go deeply into these, but I've given you the references. Galatians 6, 1 talks about the person being caught in a sin and we're supposed to be gentle or meek in restoring them. It reminds me about Jesus when he met the crowd that was going to um, execute or stone this woman who had been caught in adultery. And Jesus said to them, look, anybody who wants to throw the stone, um, make sure you don't have any sin in your own lives to be dealt with. And he was gentle with her. He was meek. Uh, another situation is when you're correcting theological opponents within the same church. Sometimes we get into these debates and they can become hot. We need to learn to manage the strength of our language and actions when you discuss sin, judgment, hell, and theological errors, or perceived theological errors in other people's um, explanations of what they believe. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 25. A third situation that I found in the scriptures was you need, you need to have gentleness when you are developing a beautiful personality in the public eye. We've been talking about Peter in some of the other sermons I've been doing. We covered this, kind of our outward appearance to the world in general. In general, we are meant to be seen as gentle people. And that's a way in which we become beautiful people at the same time. And a fourth situation is when we defend our confidence in Jesus to critics. 1 Peter 3, 15. So we, we are gentle and we're meek and are apologetic to the world in explaining to our friends and our families and anybody who doesn't understand why we follow Jesus. We don't want to lose our tempers as we explain that we love the Lord. So there are all sorts of situations for gentleness. In the Bible, um, there, we need to do this. We need to be meek in our marriages. We need to be meek when it comes to parenting. We need to be meek in our friendships. We need to be meek, especially when we have leadership authority. And please understand, it's not that you never get angry. Jesus got angry. We know about Jesus getting angry. But it's that you never give yourself an excuse to sin because of anger. If I could be allowed at this moment to kind of digress into one of these issues that's not necessarily in the Bible directly, but it's on, on our social political views today, I would like to begin to, to say, I want to thank this church body for all the gentle and meek conversations we've had around issues that have been presented in the media lately by the movement called Black Lives Matter. Um, Pastor Todd mentioned early on that people had talked to me about that, and, and these conversations were gentle. They were filled with meekness, and I'm thankful for them, um, and I, I would welcome more of that caliber of conversation for sure. We are enriched as a church by our cultural diversity, and we can learn to protect and value the spiritual contributions made by all people who worship here. Um, where there has been any hostility historically between our people, we must lay aggressions aside and focus on connecting with, with each other at the soul level. That's what Jesus invites us to. And this is how misunderstandings and offenses are resolved. So Christians, if you are led by the Spirit in this matter, continue to seek out good conversations on any of these differences we've been discussing in, the, um, in society lately. But have those conversations with meekness. But if you are not led by the Spirit of God, and instead you are full of anger or fear or bitterness or hatred or mischief, stay out of it and stay away. That's the end of my digression. 
So you might be thinking, okay, you know, I, I'm not known as a gentle person yet, but I'd like to be. How do I become more gentle? Matthew eleven twenty nine is Jesus' invitation to you. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. So he's inviting you to let him take the reins of your life and he will begin to steer you and shape you and mold you and, and model for you what it means to be a gentle person. He will use his gentleness and humility and train you with it. Since we learn meekness from Jesus, since we watch our Lord, what we need to do is meditate on his example. So let me ask you this before we move on to our third point this morning. How has the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, been gentle towards you in dealing with your sin? How has he treated you? How have you felt in his care and in his presence? He did not come to condemn you. This message is not to condemn you. He came to offer you life, and he's been meek towards you and gentle. So when you're walking with Christ, you'll be producing gentleness without weakness. The third word we have this morning is self-control. When I'm walking with Christ, I'll be producing self-control without inflexibility. So we're on this last fruit, but it's as significant as the first. The first one was love, but the last one in the list is self-control. And I would suggest to you that love is the motivation for self-control, and self-control is the way we demonstrate true love to other people and to God. But here's the definition. Self-control is the virtue of one who masters his desires and his passions, especially his sensual appetites. Um, Galatians was written to increase the Christian understanding of freedom from desires that lead us towards sin, and that includes self-control rather than enslavement to those same desires. I was sitting with my family last night, and we were talking about ideas of self-control. And one of the notions that we might have about self-control is the physical idea that we could just kind of master our bodies. And, and we found that for some of us around our table, it was almost impossible to spin your hand like this and move your foot in the opposite direction. If you need a distraction right now because you think I've been talking too long, why don't you just take your right leg and try to spin it clockwise, and then take your right hand and try to spin it counterclockwise. Apparently, if you can do both of those, you might have um, a musician's disposition, and maybe you might be great for the drums or the piano or something like that. That's a type of self-control. It has nothing to do with your moral life. This has to do with your moral life. That's what this word is about. It's about freedom and the ability to direct yourself so that you don't sin as much. When you're free in Jesus, self-control equals flexibility to move with the Holy Spirit. So if you look back a few verses in Galatians chapter 5, you'll see at the beginning that Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the new reality of our life. If we have trusted in Jesus, if we have moved him into our heart, if he is now the Lord and Savior of your life as he is mine, that's the new reality. And that produces a new situation. You, he says, you can stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit your life again to the reins of sin. That's a new ability. That's a spiritual work in your life that has come about when you submitted to Christ and as you continue to walk with him. So this is the bedrock theology that Paul wanted to fasten the feet of those Galatian believers to as they were trying to be pushed around by some of the, the people in their day. 
who believed that they needed to be circumcised. These were people that were adherents and proponents of the Mosaic law and said that you need to be circumcised if you want to please God. As free people, as they were, they they needed to come to understand that the new life in Christ has no strings attached to the Old Testament codes, to the Mosaic law. We do not live by those customs and rules. Instead, we read the Old Testament and we see principles, and we want to see these principles that guide our moral decisions. So Paul concluded that explanation with with the council. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's not the thing that controls you. The Spirit controls you. The law was an external control, identifying sin, but it failed to keep God's people from sinning. Saved people instead have the Spirit inside them, a law that is written on their hearts that helps them obey God. And God gives us self-control as a gift to help us walk with Him, to help us walk with Jesus. So that's pretty heavy. That's a lot of theology. And people continue to talk about the Old Testament and its, and its effect on us today. And so you might kind of say, well, that seems too heavy for me. So I'm going to try to put that into an illustration that maybe we can all understand. Um, it's a crude approximation of divine things, I'd have to say. So if we think about the law in, in something we see, the law is kind of like the speed limit posted on the side of the highway. It may always say 100 kilometers an hour, and it's inflexible, and it's meant to encourage everybody moving at the same pace. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is kind of like the radar gun with the monitor that it's aimed at your car, and as you drive down the road, it shows you your speed, and it changes. If you're going too slow, it shows you you're going too slow, and if you're going too fast, it warns you that you're going too fast. It kind of guides you into truth. And in this analogy, self-control is the voluntary slowing down because you're going too fast or you voluntarily speeding up because you're going too slow. And you want to be kind of consistent with the law without having to be directly um, obedient to the law, without having to drive at 100 kilometers an hour. The flexibility is knowing that in many cases, depending on the situation, depending on the weather, any speed between 0 and 120 roughly is going to be appropriate for driving. But without self-control and flexibility to help us manage our speed on the road for all moving together, freedom on the highway could become chaotic. And that's what this is all about. We have reminders of what the law was to help us understand the principles. And then we have the Holy Spirit to guide us so as we move through life together, we can adjust our speed. We can adjust the details of what we're doing and there's room to please God in a variety of ways without sinning. And the enjoyment of our freedom is possible because the Spirit produces this self-control with flexibility. We can choose now to do what God wants us to do without requiring every other believer to do things the same way. You know, it would be ridiculous this morning if we required everybody that came to church to say, this morning you have to have cereal with, with milk and sugar and three slices of oranges and that's it. Anybody who brought bacon to church this morning or anybody who's, who's eating yogurt or, or um, decided they're not eating, you're not doing the right things. We would never have a religion like that. That doesn't make sense for us. We have this freedom. And, and, and it's so that we can pursue God in, in this variation, but we get to do it without having Uh, without falling into sin. Christians walking with Jesus are given an increasing ability to control themselves to live for Christ. 
So when you are self-controlled, when that's growing in you, it's going to be good. You get to experience more times in your life where what you choose to do will please God and bring you into unity with others, especially others who want to please God. And that also means that when you are more self-controlled, you will experience less sinning with more enjoyment of the results of your disciplines, your spiritual disciplines, more enjoyment of the things like reading scripture and listening to sermons and, and praying. It's like someone who uh, wasn't in great shape and, and, and one of the problems was they hated working out, but then they ended up loving being in shape after they submitted themselves to the discipline of running and going to the gym. And so now they voluntarily maintain a lifestyle that includes regular effective exercise and healthier food choices. When, we're, when you see someone who's praying and reading and, and loving, serving, and meeting with people and, and making an emphasis in that life, and they're using self-control. They've discovered that it's so good to sin less and enjoy more unity with others and enjoy more fellowship with God, and they're doing this out of joy, and it comes from that heart of self-control. I really hope that I'm making self-control sound like a really delicious fruit. You know, when I read it the first time, it was like, wah, 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 self-control. It's like a grapefruit. It's a bit sour, but it's not. It's a beautiful thing. It comes with freedom, and that freedom is our flexibility to serve God in a variety of ways without requiring everybody to do it exactly the same way. So how do we get more self-control? I want to give you three tips to gain more self-control here. Um, one of the situations is, is sometimes we need to be self-controlled when we're tempted and we're thinking, oh, how, how can I do the right thing here? I'm so tempted. This is, I'm going to give in. I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm, I'm going to give in to that sin. Well, I want you to remember in those situations that temptation has a time limit. If you read the scriptures there, I've given you some references. We need to understand that it, we do get really uncomfortable when we're suffering. We can, we can really become uncomfortable when we have to wait for a good thing. But those are situations where we still need to exhibit self-control. And you need to use your freedoms to help you endure and wait for the temptation, which sometimes is a test that God will allow you to face for that trial to pass. Jesus went through a trial in the desert, lasted 40, 40 days in the wilderness. Um, you know, we have trials and they have a time limit. And if you can learn to endure, if you can learn to use your freedom, if you can learn to use your self-control to say, no, I'm just going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to get through this it will be easier and easier and easier for you to do what God wants you to do the next time you face that trial. And one of those verses that I gave you says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's so powerful. And that comes through self-control. Another thing that I, will help us gain more self-control is if we learn to discipline our decisions. This is essentially me telling you, be less impulsive and don't just react to the things that engage your emotions. But you can use your freedom because you have a life in Christ, because he has the reins, and because he has set you free from the desires that would lead you away into in sin. You can choose how you want to respond. You can choose to respond in ways that would please God. So discipline your decision-making. Don't just react. Make a choice and please God. And finally, another thing you can do with your self-control is to inspect your influences. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of your life. And it talks about uh, protecting the center of who you are from influences that would, 
take you to the right or the left and not the path that you should be walking with God, the path of obedience and the path of faithfulness. Self-control is definitely tied to your spiritual life and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you want to watch out for the ideas and patterns of behavior that weaken your connection with Jesus and and minimize the impact those things are having on you. As we've been in our lockdown for a long time, definitely there's been lots of hours spent trying to entertain ourselves, just making boredom go away. And I've noticed that there are lots of mindsets behind all the entertainments. And some of those things are definitely undermining self-control when it comes to obeying the Lord. And you might want to watch what you're binging on. You might want to watch the kind of ideas that are being presented to you through, through things that you're spending a lot of time focusing on. And, and maybe you can do what I've done recently and said, okay, I'm, I've done. I'm, I'm done putting hours and hours into Netflix on this. I'm going to start putting hours and hours into Scripture. I've always wanted to. I've, I don't have any excuse. I have hours to do that. And now when I go to bed, instead of thinking about the, the storyline in, in the, the movie or whatever I'm watching, I'm thinking about the storylines in Scripture, getting those faith examples, getting gentleness examples, getting self-control examples, and that's what's playing through my mind, and I'm so thankful for that because as I interact with other people, that's what the Spirit is using to help me be the kind of person He wants me to be. See, self-control isn't just spiritualized willpower. It's, uh, we need to admit that willpower has been no match for our desires to sin. To get self-control, you have to connect with Jesus in a way that changes your heart. You need to open up to him before you may ever desire to close yourself off to your favorite sin or, or a sinful habit that has control over you. So as you take a moment now, I want you to think about in your own life, where do you see a need for more self-control? Yes, praise God for those areas where you are self-controlled, but let's talk about growth. Where do you see needs for self-control? And in those areas, ask yourself, according to the wisdom passed along in Proverbs 4.23, what's going on in the middle of who you are as a person that might be increasing your temptation to sin? And what would freedom mean for you? What would self-control look like for you in this area where sinfulness has already been the ruler? We want you to be free. When you're walking with Christ, you'll be producing more, uh, you'll be producing self-control without inflexibility. So we've covered all these words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This fruit is not mysterious, and I pray that you will have more of each of them growing in your life. And the best place that I've seen to get started on this stuff is our group's ministries. And we organize our small groups. It's the ongoing context for keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. We're going to be getting back to them as we hit to the fall. And this is where the fruit will often start to show up first in our lives. It's where it will get recognized. I want there to be more places where it does get recognized. And in order to do that, we need more people to facilitate our group online, our group online experiences and even eventually groups that will be able to meet in their homes or a friend's homes. This is because it's in these locations that we get practical with our spiritual lives through these relationships. So I'm hoping that as you've studied these words with us, you might notice some fruit in your own life or the life of someone else, and you might think, Lord, would this be where you're leading me? My answer to that question is yes. 
This is where the Lord's leading you. He wants you to put your fruit on display. These are the kind of people that we need leading our groups. These are the kind of people we want influencing our groups. So if you know someone that, that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit in any way, in a way that you could commend them, I want to hear about them from you. Write me, send me a note, find a way to get, get my attention and let me know about them. I'll follow up and see if I can encourage them to become one of our group leaders this fall. And if it's you, I don't want you to think of yourself as putting yourself out there in the wrong way. I want you to take, take this as direction. Say, we want to hear from you. I want to have a conversation with you. I'd love to tell you about that, uh, about what it could be, be for you to be one of our small group leaders. And we want to train you. We want, we want to make sure you know how you can put your fruit to work in the best way to help make disciples here at Harvest. So to that end, we are having a training coming up at the end of this month on uh, Common Leadership 101. Uh, we're going to post the information for that on our website. It might be there already, but definitely it'll be there this week. So you can go there. You can sign up for that. It'll be offered online so you can take it in from home. It's a Friday night and a Saturday morning. And I would love for you to, to look at that as one of your ways of responding to this message. Lord, I want to see the fruit developed in my life, and I want that fruit to be useful in, the others, in other people's lives too. So um, please think about joining me for Uncommon Leadership 101 at the end of this month. Again, go online. You'll be able to find connections to that there. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray before we close our time. Father God, I want to thank you so much for your presence in my life and the presence that you have by your Holy Spirit in this church. God, when I think about these words, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, I can see people today. I can hear stories. I, I can see prayer requests. I can, I can see examples of ministry. I can see examples through parenting and, and examples of, of people who have been loyal to their friends and, and loyal to their leaders and leaders who have been, um, had integrity with you. Father, there's so much of your fruit that's on display. But Lord, we know there's no limit to these things. And so God, where we may be lacking, Lord, where I might be lacking, where a family might be lacking this morning in a, in a living room, as they look at each other, where, where it might be lacking in a, in a couple that's seeking you in marriage, where it might be lacking in the life of an individual who is seeking to walk with you with a great integrity, Lord. Father, would you expose that? Not to our shame, but Lord, for your glory, that we might know where your word would apply to us in an individual way this week. And God, may, may we see that there's no mystery to what needs to be done next. May we understand that all what we need to focus on now is walking with you, being obedient to the things you've said, taking a step of faith because we can, because you've given us that self-control. So Lord, I pray. I pray for the courage of someone who has to make a faithful step this week. I pray that they'd be able to do that and, and reason that it would be the right thing to do and therefore find that motivation to do that. And I pray for, for a situation where meekness needs to take over, where perhaps hostility has won too many arguments and, and, and caused conversation to break down. Lord, I pray that meekness would, would begin to flow out of the lives of the Christians in those, in those places, making sin more obvious, but Lord, really opening up the door for reconciliation and understanding and redirection. And Father, I pray for situations where self-control is needed, where someone's working really hard to do the right thing, 
and, and hoping, Lord, that they will be able to, to hold on a little bit longer. Father, give them patience. Give them endurance to, to last. God, help us encourage each other. Help us remember each other in prayer as we go through this week. We thank you for all that you speak to us through your word. And we ask you to apply it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.